You're listening to highlights from the Creative Process interview with Alice Notley. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. It's all-inclusive poetry, uh, and everything is poetry in a certain way, and poetic measure is like what we're composed of, so I can do anything with it I want to, and I admit the possibility of every possible audience. You have some poems, I believe, Blinding, for example. You said in a previous interview that it came from a place, like you heard it as a voice. You you just heard those words coming to you, and you just embodied them, I suppose. I hear voices, and I'm in touch with voices, and I I can't write unless there's a certain certain kind of vocal thing going on which is very hard to describe but I wouldn't be able to do this if I uh, hadn't paid a lot of attention to the formal aspects of poetry and I probably know more about those than anyone else that I know and I have used them for this other purpose not to uh, present my my formal capabilities but to find things out to listen to the voices of others to incorporate them into my poetry, and sometimes to speak to the dead. You know, it's all the same thing, and the formalism and the mysticism and the everyday qualities and the extra uh, terrestrial qualities. One wants them all to be the same thing, the way that one is a person walking around being one thing. I want to ask, because you have said how a poem comes alive when you speak it. And do you see that a poem is not yet complete unless it's had its oral life? I tend to write long poems. The two I wrote are un- uh, that I read so far are unusual. I tend to write long poems and I work on them every day, but I, I have to try them out and they have to, I, I read to myself a lot alone in this room. I, I read everything aloud and make sure it works as a spoken entity or I can't incorporate it into the book. It's, it's hugely important for me. I, sp- I spent a lot of time in the 90s having arguments with people about whether or not everything was language. And I guess what I think is that you can't separate language and image. There's no way of separating it from out for any of us. And we only have what's inside of us to know with, and we know with all of it at once. I want to go back to your use of the pronouns. So you're using the pronoun one. And I know that thinking about pronouns or personalizing things, then you have I the people was another. Tell us a little bit about that too, because it's interesting. It's bringing things into a personal domain of what was broader. I wrote I the people in 1985, 1986 maybe. No, it was about 1985. And I was living in New York and there, there was an official... It was like one of those years where it was an anniversary of the Constitution or something. So there were these posters everywhere that said, we the people. And then there there would be, uh, we the people in order to form our perfect union or whatever that is, the the preamble to the Constitution, you you would see this block of letters. And I was in a, my husband, my first husband had died a few years previously. And I, I didn't feel like I was part of any we. And but I did feel that I was the people somehow, so I just changed it to I the people, and it seemed to me that that could be something that anyone might say to themselves, I the people. And so I wrote this poem, I the people, and it's about my relation to the body politic, and it's not unfriendly at all. 
but at the end I say I'm split. I'm split off from the we. I'm I. The first year I was here, I made friends with a woman who's, who sewed curtains at Bastille. She had an atelier. She was an artisan. And I would go talk. She knew no English and I knew no French and I would go talk to her. And she told me, she basically told me her life story without my understanding what she was saying, really. And uh, I mean, it, it was a very intimate kind of relationship. I would sit there for an hour once a week and she would sew. I would talk to her and I would say, and I would try to speak French with her. And she had had these shattering things that had happened to her in her life. And she would tell them to me and she would have to repeat them and I would figure it out. I'm still thinking about that because the, so much of our communication isn't that totally specific. Communication is very complex at any moment. And it's not just words and it's not just gestures. It's something in, in the minds going out to each other. I keep positing telepathy. It is interesting that, and one thing about, you know, when you go into, when you're different levels of language acquisition, you know, like children are, tend to be more direct, usually, you know, not that they can't make up stories, but also, you know, I guess with the more language you acquire, the easier it is to hide what you're thinking and feeling. And so it's interesting when you come to a, a new country and you're not quite fluent, but your other senses are maybe more open because you have to be more vigilant and more, you're taking in all these things. So I was wondering if you could describe that experience and is that, do you find that was helpful to your poetry in a one way, the sensuality of different perception or almost being a child again in a language. And then as you become more fluent, you can be more subtle. You know what I mean? It's very hard to describe because what happened to my language was it became more wordy. It became wordier as if I was trying to turn everything that was going on around me into words without naming it because I didn't know how to name it in French. And it seemed to me I was picking up things, a lot of things without it being necessarily in the part where we were talking. But on the other hand, I couldn't have communicated without trying to talk. A lot of the time, it still doesn't seem to me that I speak French very well. But I've been here now for 28 years and I, I speak French every day and I read in French, but it's, it remains continuously mysterious to me. And every day I feel like an idiot at some point. And so I stay tough. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's very tough to always be dealing with a language that isn't, isn't your first language. And it's probably made me a better person and possibly a better poet, but I'm not sure. That's interesting why you say it made you a better person. Well, because uh, you can't, it's, it's hard to be arrogant all the time when you don't speak the same language as most of the people around you. I mean, you just can't keep that going, can you? Why did I write For the Ride? I'm not quite sure why I read it, except that I sort of lost, I lost my sense of personal life somewhere along the line. And I, I started seeing everything in these bigger shapes. And I, 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 saw, I saw global warming from 1992, 1993. I wrote a long poem about global warming in 1993. And then it, it was a subject in all of my subsequent poetry, but nobody else was talking about it very much. And nobody paid any attention to the fact that I was talking about it, but I kept seeing it. 
And around 2010, I just, you know, I had the vision of the end of everything, possibly. I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what everything was in the end of everything or what the end was. But, you know, there's a, there's a sense that uh, something crucial is playing out all the time. And I seem to be involved in seeing and talking about these bigger shapes of things bigger than my life. I think people have to, they have to learn how to give things up. And that, that's probably the most important thing, giving things up right now. There, there's too much clutter everywhere and it's just ruined everything. It's ruined the planet. Uh, if people could just see themselves as people, as ones who don't need to have things. And poetry is about not having things. You have the poem. You can just have it. You don't even need it on a page. You don't, even, you know, you don't need anything to make it up. To write it, you can make it up out of the air. You can make it, do, make it with your voice. It's, it's about having nothing. And we need less. We need fewer cars. We need fewer the things in the atmosphere. We need, we, we need to eat less. We need less of everything and we will be happier with less. <laughs> I think that's so true. I've been asking that question of a lot of people and actually no one said it as clearly as that. Yeah, we, we can act, happiness doesn't come from the objects that we accumulate. It distances us often, things that are most important. We need food, we need air, it's true, but the nourishment that can come from a poem, the companionship is, uh, how can you measure that? No, you can't. No, it's, it's what we are. It's what we are. I mean, we're poetry. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click and subscribe. Thank you for listening.